Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. But at my uh, Big Amateurism website, I have supplemental materials that you can check out that you can't link to on the third-party directories. I also have a blog. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so by email at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is March 25th, 2022. And in this episode, I'm going to talk about an interview that I heard on a podcast just uh, a few days ago with former UNC Chancellor Holden Thorpe. And it was a really interesting interview. And Dr. Thorpe talked about some of the themes that I have been talking about in this podcast. And he just came right, right out and put it on the line, which is why I named this episode Holden Thorpe unplugged. I'm going to give you a little bit on his background here in a second, but I just want to give you the name of this podcast. It's called Trustees and Presidents, Opportunities and Challenges in Intercollegiate Athletics. And it's hosted by Karen Weaver, Dr. Karen Weaver, who has experience in athletics administration. I think she was at the University of Minnesota for a good while. And I think she's doing some really important work. And she is focusing on the governance issues and how universities at the institutional level should be thinking about the business of big time college sports. And I think that is really where so much of this discussion should be landing. And I think that Dr. Weaver does that through the lens of institutional interest, as the title of her podcast suggests. So I, we have different starting points. I start from an athlete's rights standpoint. I think Dr. Weaver starts from an institutional interest standpoint. But I think there's some common ground, at least at the issue identification level, and asking who should be in charge of this whole enterprise and why is it so dysfunctional? And what can we do at the structural level to try to align the values that all the stakeholders claim to hold into a model that is defensible and equitable. Now to Dr. Thorpe. So Holden Thorpe was the chancellor at UNC from 2008 to 2013, and he was in the hot seat when the academic scandal at UNC started to heat up in 2010. And it started really as a, a football issue, and then it expanded into basketball, both men's and women's basketball. Dr. Thorpe was just caught in the middle of this hurricane. So many of the dysfunctions and hypocrisies in the relationship between big-time college sports and the institutions that host them, like UNC, really became obvious to people who were willing to look at it honestly. And as uh, Dr. Thorpe eloquently points out in this interview, getting people to look honestly at some defects in an institution that they have a close emotional attachment to is a real challenge. And that's at the individual level. But when the feeling, that emotional attachment that's based on false premises becomes institutionalized, it is almost impossible to fight against. And that is one of the great challenges in the athletes' rights movement. The narratives that have been built in, the Norman Rockwell narratives and the chariots of fire narratives and the ESPNized narratives are so deeply embedded into the psyche of the consuming public and people who are attached to the institutions that participate in the big time college sports sweepstakes that people like Dr. Thorpe are viewed as being provocative and revolutionary and simply saying out loud what should be obvious to anyone who's paying attention. And the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries of this corrupt, dysfunctional, big-time college sports business model want it that way. They don't want people 
looking under the rocks. They don't want people coming in and asking tough questions because the people who are defending this system and who are benefiting from it have zero incentive to talk honestly about what's going on behind the scenes. And so they don't unless they are forced to. So uh, this interview is about 30 minutes long. I'm going to link to it in my show notes on the bigamateurism.com website so you can find it there. I want to talk briefly about uh, Dr. Thorpe, his background, and the basics of this UNC scandal. And then one little anecdote I want to throw in. So Dr. Thorpe is a scientist. He's a chemist by training and he has long-standing, lifelong connections to UNC. He, I think, joined the faculty there in the 1990s and then ultimately became the chancellor. Uh, Dr. Thorpe is a, a brilliant scientist. and He's one of these guys, when you hear him, and I've heard him a, a few times, and not just in this interview, he's one of these guys that's, he's running circles around you and you don't even know it. And he's got 10 big software programs running in the background in his head and he manages them effortlessly. I, I think with that kind of intellect, particularly in a scientist, sometimes you get these statements that are just jarring. They're just straight kind of Spock-like truths that aren't sugar-coated. They're not massaged. And the delivery is just that, yeah, this is, this is the way it is. This is obvious. Of course it's this way. <laughs> Thorpe does that with how he sees the business model. And he talks also about the relationship between the laborers and the beneficiaries of that labor, in, and I think in an honest way. But this scandal started really in 2010 in the football program under former UNC coach Butch Davis, and there were allegations of misconduct. And then that evolved and snowballed really into a broader university issue. And it turned out that one of the departments at UNC, the Afro-American Studies Department, was offering some courses that were essentially fraudulent. There was no work required, and they were populated in part by athletes. One of the issues I want to talk about is how the institutional interests in situations where there's corruption and there's an intersection between the athletic side of the university and the academic side of the university, it's always viewed as an athletics scandal. And then the NCAA got involved and then a regional accreditation agency that UNC was a part of got involved and it was just one bad press story after another. It was a nightmare for UNC. And I think a, a lot of the narratives were misframed. And in the final analysis, there wasn't any punitive action taken by the NCAA or by this regional accreditation agency. But it was a, a problem for UNC at the public relations level. There were a couple of books that were written about it. Uh, obviously, people are still talking about it. So I'm not sure why Dr. Thorpe was talking about this now. A, a book came out recently, one of these books I talked about, came out just a few months ago, and it's titled Discredited, the UNC Scandal and College Athletes Amateur Ideal that came out in the fall. I don't know if Dr. Thorpe was involved in this, but I think it takes a similar tack to, to what he's t saying now. And he did an interview with WRAL, a local affiliate here in North Carolina, the Raleigh affiliates, close to me. I live in Wake Forest, which is a suburb of, of Raleigh. And he talked uh, in pretty stark terms about his feelings on the hypocrisy that uh, the college sports world has bought into and this amateur fraud and all of the warm and fuzzy narratives that the in-system state stakeholder beneficiaries propagate to keep the gravy train rolling. And that's true at the institutional level, and that was true at UNC. So UNC was benefiting from uh, the very hypocrisies that Thorpe talks about. And one of the things I had in my mind when I'm listening to, to Thorpe explain his views on that scandal and, and what it means for higher education and big-time sports, I'm thinking, if this scandal hadn't broken under Thorpe's tenure. Is he, are we having this discussion? Is he making these observations? Would he have come to these realizations? Who knows? But for most university presidents who successfully dodge any scandal, I think they just rock along and they're happy to accept the benefits 
of all of the dysfunction and the hypocrisy and the dishonesty, yet they also want to go out and profess their amateur virtue to the world. And that is this amateur professional dilemma that I've talked so much about and that I thought was so well articulated in sports historian Ronald Smith's 1988 book, Sports and Freedom. And I, I think that what Dr. Thorpe is talking about really is that at its essence, the, the moral flexibility that's required to play both sides of that coin, the professional side and the amateur side. But before I get into exactly what Dr. Thorpe said and my thinking on it, I want to give Dr. Thorpe some props here for something that he probably doesn't even remember, but it was influential. That's one of the things. You have these people assuming positions of leadership, and even in circumstances where things don't go as planned, and that's clearly the case for Dr. Thorpe's tenure at UNC, being out there and talking and engaging people in the community can have enormous benefit that's invisible to people like Dr. Thorpe. And this is a good example of that. So I think it was in 2011. I'm pretty sure it was because my daughter was a junior in high school at that time. And Dr. Thorpe came to speak at a local, I think it was a Rotary Club, could have been a Kiwanis Club, in Durham. I was living in Durham at the time. And this was really on the front edge of the scandal. I really wanted to hear what Dr. Thorpe had to say. And so I went to the luncheon. I, I wasn't a member of the organization, but I have friends who were, and I would occasionally get you know, invited to a talk here and there. And so Dr. Thorpe comes and he talks, and, and my recollection is that he was very forthright. And what really struck me was how like linear he was when he got on a point. It was like point A to point B, and he had the most efficient way to get there. Sometimes it was a little abrupt, but it was honest. And I just loved that about the way that he presented himself at that, at that luncheon. And then after the luncheon, it went to a Q&A, and somebody in the audience asked Dr. Thorpe what advice he would give parents who had a child who was applying to colleges. And that happens, of course, the junior year is the big year. And my daughter was at the very beginning of that. This luncheon was early in the school year. It was in the fall, I believe. Without batting an eye, Dr. Thorpe looked at all of us and said, if you have a child who is a junior in high school, get off their backs. And it really, he kind of put us back on our heels a little bit. And then he went on to explain that as parents, so much of the pressure that our kids feel is invisible to us. And he saw that, he sees that at the institutional level at a highly selective university like UNC and the extent to which parents get involved and over-involved. And he said something, I don't know how exactly he put it, but it was kind of like, your kids are applying. You're not. They get the gold star if uh, they get in. You don't get the gold star. So... But it was powerful to me because I was struggling with that. And, and my daughter, she has her own mind, and I was afraid to say or do anything because I thought she might do the exact opposite. So I took Dr. Thorpe's advice, and I just completely backed off, and I just let go. And it was one of the best decisions I made as a parent. So I, I really have to thank Dr. Thorpe for that. That was incredible advice, and I took it. And so Dr. Thorpe left UNC in 2013, and it was because of the and then he went to be the provost at Washington University in St. Louis. He talks about that in this interview. And that's a D3 school and the differences in the environment. And I think he and a lot of other people who have been under the microscope in Power 5 kind of athletic setting look at that as a respite. And it was like, oh, gosh, this is what it's supposed to be about. And I think that that's how he described his experience at WashU. And he left there in 2019. And now he is the chief of the science family of journals. He's an, the editor there of the science family of journals. And sounds like he's very happy doing that. And, and now I'm just going to go through this interview and I'm going to focus on the issues that I think are important and that relate to things that I've talked about in this podcast and that I want to emphasize. But one of the things that's interesting, as Dr. Weaver was introducing Dr. Thorpe, she said, this is one of the most eye-popping conversations we've had on this podcast. And I found that to be really interesting. And I think that sort of reflects one of the fundamental points that Dr. Thorpe was making is that we are so buried in myth and in hypocrisy and self-deception 
and complacency that you, when you speak about these things honestly, it really does seem eye-popping to a lot of in-system stakeholder analysts. And I would view Dr. Weaver as an in-system stakeholder. And when I first listened to this episode, I thought, boy, thank God he's saying this. And are there other university presidents who have been in the Power Five setting who feel the same way and would have the guts to say it out loud? And the other thing that's unique about what Dr. Thorpe is, is doing here is that he's breaking the code. There's this code, and if you're a high-level administrator in higher education, you don't talk about the warts in the system. And you certainly don't do it in a way that could be construed as calling out a colleague. There's this sense of collegiality among university administrators, particularly among university presidents and chancellors, that I think borders on omerta. And the fact that we haven't had the kind of criticism of university presidents among in between presidents and different classes of presidents is part of the problem. And I think that has also driven this irrational deference to the corrupt NCAA national office since 2003 when we had former university presidents acting as the president of the NCAA. Miles Brand came in in 2003 from Indiana University, and he was supposed to put things right through the values of higher education and all the things the Knight Commission was saying in the late 80s and early 90s, and they go back really to the early 20th century to align the commercialization and professionalization and, and to create it, actually, to align it with the values of higher education. And then Mark Emmert takes over for Brand in 2010 and how he has escaped criticism from the academy and from his colleagues is just stunning to me because this guy's been a train wreck and he represents the worst of everything that Thorpe and, and Weaver are describing in university presidents. And that is they are just grooming their resume for the next job and it has nothing to do with making the place you're at better. And for university presidents in that game, it's all about gold stars and self-glorification. Uh, Dr. Thorpe talks about the gold star mentality with trustees. I think the same is true with university presidents. And as I've noted in, in many episodes, prior episodes, Miles Brand came in as the savior, the mission-aligned higher education savior, and he fired Bob Knight, and he was the toast of the town in academic circles that were hostile to big-time college sports. And then he gets into the NCAA president's office in 2003, and he is the fox in the hen house. He authors this noxious collegiate model as a financial framework to justify all the corruption that is taking place right now in real time in big-time college sports. And I'll get to that as well. So early in the interview, Thorpe starts by laying the, the broad issues out. And he's talking about this tension between big-time college sports and the role of the university presidents. And he says, well, presidents are not really free to delegate the athletics enterprise the way that they would like to, because on the one hand, you've got a huge chunk of the board who got on the board mainly because they wanted to be involved in athletics. Then on the other side, you have the Knight Commission saying the presidents are the ones who need to be responsible for ma maintaining the integrity of the whole thing. Well, those two are diametrically opposed messages. Yes, they are. And that is precisely this amateur professional dilemma that Ronald Smith identified in his book, Sports and Freedom. And that is you profess amateur virtue to the outside world for public consumption, but behind the scenes, you're insisting on the most professionalized, commercialized football, men's basketball products that the market can support. And that's exactly what Thorpe is talking about here. And he says that those two things just can't coexist. They are diametrically opposed. And that tension brings up an obvious question. Well, who should be in charge of big time college sports? And that is the question that has plagued big-time college sports going back to the early 20th century. Weaver asks Thorpe, well, who, who then 
should ultimately be accountable for the ethical behaviors and compliance of athletics on campus. And then Thorpe says, well, the president should be the one who's accountable, although it should be enthusiastically delegated to the athletic director. And so when there is a problem, the president should, if everything's working well, simply approve the recommendation from the athletics director. The problem is that the governing boards and the alumni disagree sometimes with what even the athletics department thinks they should do. And certainly with a quite a lot of the faculty and staff would think would be important. And so this sets up a really tough situation. And what I found so interesting about that setup, and we're not even two questions into this interview, and already Dr. Thorpe has painted himself into a box, I, I think. And he's saying, well, yes, the president should be ultimately responsible and in control, but this really should be delegated down to the athletics directors. And if you have athletics people that you can trust, then you, know, you should be able to trust them. In that, what I was hearing is Condoleezza Rice's frustration after her work on the Commission on College Basketball, when she, when she described the decision-making stakeholders and big-time college sports as a circular firing squad. So on the one hand, Dr. Thorpe is, I think, accurately capturing the professional amateur dilemma. But when it comes to ownership at the institutional level, he playing the circular firing squad game. And it's just so deeply insinuated into the business model that I think that it's tough to get a clear answer from any of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries about who really should be in control. And I also want to emphasize, and I talked about this in some of my first episodes, this notion of presidential control and institutional control and having presidents being primarily responsible for the governance and regulation and values of big-time college sports. This goes back to the early 20th century, and it just keeps coming up again and again and again. And the reason the question comes up again and again is that consistently the values of higher education and the values of big-time sports don't align, and they're becoming more and more misaligned as the value of the product increases and the hypocrisy in the business model becomes more apparent. But when there is a discussion about who should be in charge. It comes back time and time again to the university presidents. And I think Thorpe comes around to a solution, and that is simply to end the charade, end the hypocrisy. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But on this point of presidential leadership as the salve for all the ills in the relationship between big-time college sports and higher education more broadly, we can take this back to the Carnegie Report in 1929. I've talked quite a bit about that. And they said the buck stops with the presidents. You had a similar effort in the 1940s in the discussions over the terms of the athletic scholarship and the sanity code. And the presidents wanted to to try to keep the relationship between the the recruited student and the university as an academic one primarily, not an athletic one. And of course, in the 1950s, they capitulated to the full athletic scholarship. And also in the 1950s, and this is when Walter Byers took over and then the television era came into the marketplace. And that was probably the most transformational event in the history of the NCAA and then the Board of Regents decision as well. But the American Council on Education was trying to assert itself and trying to to reconcile what they saw as an unhealthy relationship between the commercialized, professionalized product and its relationship with TV. And they wanted the NCAA to come to, to grips with the fact that there that tension existed and it needed to be resolved in favor of academic interests. That didn't go anywhere. And then in 1984-85, you had the President's Commission, which was designed to make the case that the ultimate decision-making in college sports should come from presidents and that that needed to be the focus of the regulation and governance of college sports going forward. That didn't work. That did lead into the Knight Commission's work in the late 80s and early 90s. And then in 1991, you had that first report, Keeping Faith with the Student-Athlete, which was built around, fundamentally built around, the notion of presidential control and responsibility for intercollegiate athletics. And nothing really 
changed. And in the mid-1990s, you had this change in the governance structure at the NCAA that went from one school, one vote legislation to a federated system, top-heavy with university presidents and chancellors. So as of the mid-1990s, university presidents and chancellors basically governed the NCAA. They dominated the NCAA Board of Governors. They dominated the Division I Board of Directors. They dominated all these committees and nothing changed. These university presidents seem to be pressing the gas on the commercialization and professionalization of big-time college sports. And then heading into the early 2000s, you had, as I mentioned earlier, former university presidents taking over as the NCAA president. Miles Brand did that in 2003. And things didn't get better. They got worse. And in, in 2001, I talked about Miles Brand's speech before the National Press Club. This was before he came, became the NCAA president. He was speaking the, the language. He was speaking the, the tough talk of the academy, and we have to align our values, and we have to decrease commercialization. We have to decrease professionalization. And he explicitly said that we needed to have less money in the system, not more money in the system. Then three years later, he comes up with the collegiate model, which demands the maximum exploitation of revenue in uh, big-time football and big-time men's basketball. And he justified that exploitation of those two sports and the laborers in those two sports on the grounds that we would take that money and send it downstream to participation opportunities for non-revenue and Olympic sport athletes without acknowledging the people who were involved in that transfer. And that was a massive, regressive, race-based transfer of wealth from largely black laborers to overwhelmingly white beneficiaries. Brand offered up that grand justification of the financial underpinnings of big-time college sports to try to reconcile these fundamental inconsistencies in the values of higher education and the professional commercialized products of football and men's basketball. And that grand rationalization has been a train wreck for revenue-producing athletes. And I've talked quite a bit about that. Nobody's talking about that issue. It didn't come up in this interview. It's not part of the thinking. And that, I think, is the most important threshold issue that has to be put on the table. We have to put Miles Brand's collegiate model as a financial framework in college sports on the table, and we need to look at it with as clear an eye as Dr. Thorpe looks at the broader business model issues in this interview. And then on the backside of Miles Brand's tenure. We have Mark Emmert come in, and I'm not. I'm just not going to waste my breath trying to talk about Emmert. But through that period of time, then you also had the Power Five takeover of the NCAA governance process. This has hostile takeover of big time football under the NCAA umbrella, going back to the 1970s, and it accelerated in 2013-14 with the autonomy legislation and classification, and then. That takeover was complete with this constitutional makeover in 2021-2022. And under that model, university presidents have a much more limited role. They have fewer seats in governance, and it's not clear where they fit in. That new constitution retained a provision called institutional control, which on its face places the ultimate authority for the conduct and control of intercollegiate athletics on the university presidents. But it it's very broad. It's not very potent when sitting next to it is this reduction in the number of university presidents and chancellors on the board of governors. And I've talked quite a bit about that too. So I think that Dr. Thorpe's observations on who should be in control and the role of presidents really begs all of these questions. And I, I don't know where things stand right now. And it's hard to get university presidents to even talk honestly about it, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast episode on Thorpe's interview with Dr. Weaver. And, and then Dr. Thorpe gets to, I think, maybe the most important issue, and that is how have we lost our way at the values level in having a climate and culture, an institutional climate and culture that is so built around the athletic identity of the institutions. And in the case of UNC, this belief that UNC had found this ideal marriage between the values of higher education and the athletics component 
of the university, and they, they referred to it as the quote-unquote Carolina way. And Dr. Thorpe talks about that. And I, I don't want to talk about it in, in those terms because particularly being a Duke guy, people get all bowed up and think I'm taking shots at UNC. I am not at all. And one of the important things that Dr. Thorpe said is that this could have happened at any Power 5 school. And I think most Power 5 institutions and most leaders and decision makers, both on the academic side and the athletic side, when they saw what was going on at UNC and what, what was happening to Dr. Thorpe, my guess is is they were saying there but for the grace of God. And I think that that's true. So I, I want to go to where Dr. Thorpe, I think, is talking about this kind of more broadly. He, he talks about UNC, but this is a common dynamic throughout the Power Five. And he talks about his personal history. You know, he's a UNC guy. He grew up in North Carolina. All of his family were dyed-in-the-wool UNC people. And he was a fan of Carolina basketball when he was a kid. And so he says that I had bought into this whole thing, hook, line, and sinker. And by whole thing, he's talking about this fantasy world where you have these two irreconcilable thoughts that you hold in your head at the same time, and you found some way to reconcile them without looking honestly at how they could be too good to be true. And that is that you can have perennially winning teams and then also field those teams with athletes who are all uh, road Scholar candidates. I mean, that, that's just a silly proposition, but that's the way that the business model's been propagandized, and that's a product of the power of the publicity machines, not just in the sports media, that's an important part of it, but at the institutional level in this quest for branding and marketing, prestige, power, social currency, loyalty, which all lead to money. And th those are the things that universities crave, the underlying motivations for this fantasy world that we have created and that we uh, willingly live in all go back to those fundamental purposes and those fundamental goals of the institutional interest. And again, that's as old as uh, higher education in America. And Thorpe throws in this quote, he says that the people who bought into the quote-unquote Carolina way, they wanted the athletes to be Harvard students Monday through Friday, and then the athletes to compete like Alabama on Saturday. And I don't know, maybe that's a common expression. I haven't heard that before, but there's an element of that at a lot of Power Five institutions. And I think that's true at Duke. I think that's true at, at all the private schools. And I think that too is an illusion. And there's, there's just no perfect way to do it because the interests simply are irreconcilable. So then Thorpe talks about that in a really interesting way that I really like. I think this is a great way to, to view it thematically and structurally. He says, so what happened at UNC that made this so hard? And he talks about this really three constituency groups. He said, first, there were the hardcore message board guys who didn't care if you cheated. And he said there were trustees who felt the same way. And I believe that to be true. And he said, when the fake classes came along, those people wanted to figure out a way to keep them going. You know, so that it would maybe make it easier for us to recruit more athletes who are going to win more games. Then he says on the other side, so he's talking about the extremes now. So on one extreme are these people who say any means to the next victory. Then you have this other class of people, and he, he says who on the other side, who hated athletics and always hated it and wanted to get rid of it. I have uh, experienced that group both as a, an athlete and also in my time in academia. And there are a critical mass of faculty members at Power Five universities who have revenue-producing sports derangement syndrome. These people go off the rails. And that is more than a critical mass. There are far more people who hold that belief in the Power Five academic world than those institutions would ever acknowledge. And then Thorpe says that in the middle, we have this massive swath of people. This is the, the big kind of swath. If you say you, say you got 20% cheaters, 20% I hate big-time college sports and the coaches and the athletes and anything associated with it. In the middle, you've got this 60% of people who 
as Thorpe describes it, have been given this intoxicating drug that allow them to enjoy watching them winning games without having to face up to the fact that Carolina cheated just like everybody else. And the five stages of grief for those people who had spent their lifetime, including me, thinking that they could enjoy athletics without having to face up to all the hypocrisy was very traumatizing. And I think it's within that vast swath in the middle of people who have just chosen to indulge this fantasy that the power of the big-time college sports marketplace really expresses itself. And I think so much of that is a product of human nature. We want to believe that when we give our allegiance to an institution or to a team, that it's going to reflect the values that we hold. And if we're told that it does, then we will believe it. We choose to believe it. We desperately want to believe it. Sometimes we need to believe it. And when there is irrefutable truth that that image was a false image, it is very difficult to accept. And I've had personal experience with this in my work with people. And these are doctors and lawyers and scientists and academicians and people who in most of their regular life are operating in uh, pretty sophisticated levels of logic and reason and common sense and reality. But in this one area, they have granted themselves the permission to just buy into the fantasy. They buy the ticket. They take the ride. We're in Disneyland and we're just in this theme park mentality where we don't have to think. We just have to feel the way people say we're allowed to feel. And even if it's built on a pack of lies, we feel good when we're in it and we are not pulled out of it willingly or quietly. And since I've been doing my stuff on athletes' rights, I have had some difficult conversations that just get shut down. People just don't want to talk about it, particularly when I uh, raised the racial overlay to this business model. It's just a, a non-starter. And they think I'm somehow betraying the this grand pact that we've made in the sports world that everything's fine and dandy and we've carved out this one place in our lives where we can get away from all the crap in the world and they don't want anybody coming in and tinkering with that. And my response to that, and I think that this is implicit in what Dr. Thorpe was observing in, in this middle swath, and my response to that is we can look at this honestly and we can acknowledge the limitations of the fantasy world that we've created, and we can incorporate some realities that will result in some alignment between the truth of what's happening on the academic side and then on the athletic side. And it's not going to in any way impair our enjoyment of college sports or our love of college sports or our emotional connection to our institution and our team. It may enhance it because it'll be based on something that's real. And I'm going to go deep into the archives here. When I listened to this episode on, on Dr. Weaver's podcast, I had a thought. I, I've been researching and writing and talking for, for four years. And that first year was really devoted to some intense research. And I was going into academic databases and looking for literature in certain phases of the evolution of college sports. And one of the areas I landed on was the, the very first part of the 20th century when football was really taken off. And this was running through Harvard, Princeton, and Yale primarily. And then you had all of these really nasty injuries and some deaths. And there was a genuine safety issue. And Teddy Roosevelt called all the people together to talk about it and all that stuff. And that was, I think that's the romanticized view of how the NCAA started. But in, in December of 1905, the charter members of the predecessor organization to the NCAA, they got together in New York City. It was very late in December of 1905. And that was really the, the predicate for the, the NCAA. And there was a group, I can't remember the name of the organization. It wasn't the NCAA. I think they, they changed the name in, in 1910. But there was a lot of discussion around that time about what the value system ought to be in college sports. And there was a ton of discussion about this amateur professional dilemma. And I, I pulled up a few articles that I found really interesting because the way that the institutional stakeholders were, were talking about this back then was really in a very honest way that addresses very directly the, the problems that we're talking about right now. And remember that the NCAA for the, until the 1950s 
was really a flaccid debating society. It didn't have enforcement jurisdiction. I talked all about that in the pay-for-play series. It wasn't really until the early Walter Byers years. I guess the Sanity Code was a precursor to the enforcement and infractions model that Walter Byers put together in the early 50s. But prior to that, the NCAA really had no meaningful regulatory authority or uh, enforcement authority. But you had these discussions at that time that were really interesting and there's one, let me see, I need to go back to this paper. I got papers all over the place here, <laughs> falling apart. Let's see. So the, the name of this paper is Athletic Professionalism and Its Remedies. And its primary author is Edwin H. Hall. And he was a professor at Harvard University at the time. And uh, this was published in the School Review in December of 1905. So the very same year and month that the charter members of the NCAA met to, to form the NCAA. And it was initially published by the University of Chicago Press. And this was really a debate. And so Professor Hall started off with a discussion of how he saw professionalism and amateurism in college sports. And remember, this was at a time when you had really a Wild West recruiting environment. And just, what, 25 years later, the Carnegie Report documented all of this and the fact that there was no such thing as amateurism. Nobody adhered to it. And some of the authors of the amici brief in the U.S. Supreme Court from sports historians made those same observations in the Austin case. So Dr. Hall was part of this. It was more of a symposium. It was styled as a debate, and there were maybe six people, and all their comments are included here. But there were some common themes here, and I think in the aggregate, these observers, and a number of them were the headmasters of some prestigious boarding schools that were sending athletes to the Ivy League schools. And there was a discussion about what this model ought to look like, what values should frame it, and what the role of amateurism was going to be. That was essentially the question. So this was a debate about, at the values level, at the moral level, really, about whether amateurism was a good thing or not. And several of the participants in this symposium, including Edwin Hall, came down at a morals level on the side of acknowledging professionalism. And they framed it in a really interesting way. And I think in a way that's suggested by what Dr. Thorpe had to say at the values level, at the morals level, when he was really helping the community deal with the trauma of seeing their fantasy just blowing up in their faces. And I want to read something that the President Hall said at that symposium in December of uh, 1905. And Harvard at the time, and he, he read out the Harvard statement of amateurism that was well on the side of amateur virtue. The uh, athletes there weren't su supposed to get anything of value in exchange for their athletic participation or ability or performance. And Harvard's statement of amateurism was viewed as a bright line in the sand. Yet everyone knew that amateur line in the sand was breached with regularity. <laughs> in fact, that rule was probably honored mostly in its breach. So here's what Hall says. He says, remember, there's nothing wicked in giving money to a young man to help him through college, partly because you are interested in him as an athlete. There's nothing base in his taking that money if he can maintain his standing as a student and his position as an athlete at the same time. Do away with the state of mind which this rule has established for many years and consider whether there is anything base in that. I say that the practice of giving and receiving money might increase somewhat, but I am confident that the practice of lying and deceiving in all ways in regard to such giving would diminish very greatly, and I should be willing to see the amount of that act increased fourfold if I could diminish to one quarter the amount of lying about it, which is the main evil. I mean, that's just... Perfect. That's beautiful. And that is the true dilemma here. That is the true values dilemma. That is the true moral dilemma. Is it better to outright engage in honest and straightforward compensation of athletes for their athletic ability so long as they can be bona fide students? Or is it better to have a rule that prohibits 
that compensation, knowing that it's not obeyed, and then having the institution and the university presidents and the boards of trustees lie about it on a routine basis, which is the greater moral harm? And I think that the participants at this symposium all came down to that fundamental question, and most of them landed on the side of honestly acknowledging the true value of the athletics ability of these athletes and giving them some money, rather than having rules that prohibit that kind of compensation and then lying about it. So the lying about it was the real moral failing in the eyes of these academicians in the early 20th century. And we really don't frame the dilemma on those terms now. I think it's implied in Ronald Smith's professional amateur dilemma. I think it was implied in the way that Dr. Thorpe was talking about these three categories of people, and and in particular, this middle swath, this vast swath of people who just want to believe so badly the lie that they will go to extraordinary lengths to protect that fantasy. And it's in that lie that we have the greater moral failing. And the, the system that we've built is so powerful, and the NCAA, the Power Five, the sports media, all of these corporate influences who are trying to make money off the big-time college sports marketplace, all these people in important decision-making positions in Congress, in, in courts, in the public relations arena, the lobbyists, everybody is selling the lie because it has market value. And it is so seductive. I'm watching the Duke game last night, Duke, Texas Tech. It was an incredible basketball game. Again, I'm looking at this. I, I can't be objective when it comes to Duke basketball because of my relationship to it. And it was one hell of a basketball game. If you're just a basketball fan, that was a great, great college basketball game. But I'm getting sucked right in to all of the heart tugs and all the feel-good stories and the mythological narratives that came out of that game almost in real time. And they are just built within this overarching fantasy world where we've taken that intoxicating drug. It's like uh, Soma from Aldous Huxley's uh, A Brave New World. His, what was that in the 1930s? And there was this drug that kind of was the opiate for the masses and it made everybody happy and compliant and nobody questioned anything. Everything was great. And ESPN and Turner and CBS and you know, all these corporate entities, Disney, who's behind ESPN. How perfect is that? We're living in this fantasy world, and it's created by the best fantasy maker in human history. But we buy the ticket. We take the ride. I did it last night. And as I was coming back to what I wanted to talk about today, I had to shake my head. But that's the power of it. And I think that's what Dr. Thorpe was describing in, in these three constituency groups and this one in the middle. And it is so deeply embedded in the American psyche and the DNA in the college sports world that talking against it the way that he has is not easy. And you do that at your own risk. But I'm so happy that he did because speaking on those terms, particularly coming from a former university chancellor, breaking the code is so important because I think it gives permission to other people who feel the same way to speak on the same terms. And as I said at the very beginning of my work on this, as I was framing what I wanted to accomplish here, I said, this is a battle for hearts and minds. This isn't a battle to try to get a particular court decision or a particular law passed or to have some symbol symbolic statement that is going to suddenly change things. It's not the way it works when you have such a powerful ingrained value system that is a false and bad value system. And I analogize that to the Jim Crow South and the shift from Jim Crow laws to the civil rights movement and civil rights legislation. And there were a bunch of laws passed and a bunch of ink on, on paper, but that doesn't do anything until you change hearts and minds. And that's the battle here. And the power of the lie that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have been selling and that the sports industry, big amateurism, has been selling for decades is not going to change 
overnight. And as I've discussed in a couple of prior episodes, the reason I named this podcast The Big Amateurism Monologues is because in my judgment, the magnitude of the lies that big amateurism has been selling for over a century now are on the same scale as the lies that the other bigs told America, like big tobacco, and that smoking really wasn't bad for you. In fact, it may have salutary health effects. And then the lies that Big Pharma has been telling for years that really came to a, I think, a critical point with the opioid drugs and Purdue Pharma's opioid drugs. We had the entire country being lied to and we accepted the lie, including the medical community which didn't do its work to go behind the flimsy research. I'm not even sure it rose to the level of research that Purdue was relying on to make its case that opioids were not addictive. And of course, we have big gambling now, and that's so important because the NCAA and the Power Five and big amateurism have jumped in bed with big gambling. And now it's just going to be this great thing for women's sports and Olympic sports because we have access to new revenue streams that can be used to make the experience of the athletes in those sports better. And in those bigs, it has taken decades and decades of public persuasion to change the way people think about those products, about tobacco products, about opioids, about gambling, in order to change the narrative. But it is not an easy or quick process. And the same is going to be true with dispelling the lies that big amateurism has been telling for almost a century. And I think what we're seeing now, and there's some interesting things happening that I'm going to be talking about here too. We had the NCPA filing a complaint with the Office of Civil Rights under the Justice Department, making the allegation that needs to be made that the NCAA's compensation limits have a disproportionate impact on African-American athletes. I've been talking about uh, about that at length. That's still an area that we aren't talking about honestly. And that issue did not come up in this interview with Dr. Thorpe. But I think at the kind of the traction level, the public resonance level, when we talk about race, that's where the rubber is going to meet the road in terms of America's willingness to really take a truly honest look at this business model. And there's, there's a, a tendency among white America to just recoil from that. And it's not, I'm not saying that's in bad faith. I think there's just discomfort. There's just discomfort to talk about race issues. But I also think about the race issues as I do about the compensation issues more broadly. If we can talk honestly about that and get that on the table and acknowledge that there's a racial component to the exploitation model and we correct it, we take action, that will bring integrity back into the product and we can stop living that lie that we're just going to ignore it. And again, all these things, I think, have the potential to create a, a product and a relationship among the stakeholders that removes the lie. So much of the, the tension, so much of the uncertainty, so much of the, oh, we can't solve this. It's just unsolvable. It's just so complicated. Is the product of having these two irreconcilable value systems colliding and refusing to acknowledge that the value system that insists on denying athletes fair treatment as free Americans has to go. And if we just take that out, we just take all of the stupid arguments that the NCAA and Power Five have been making for decades on compensation limits and basic rights and uh, equal bargaining power, all this stuff goes away. It, it just goes away. But the same people who are responsible for creating the dysfunction in this system have put themselves in charge of solving it. And that's a problem. And I've talked about that as well. And uh, I want to move on to the next couple of things. I'm going to close those out pretty quickly here. But right after Dr. Thorpe talks about the, those three classes and then this, this middle swath, he, he was asked whether in his interview, to become the chancellor, whether anybody asked him about athletics and his thoughts on athletics. And he said it, it just didn't come up because everything was fine and dandy and everybody was just thinking everything was hunky-dory. But, but he puts it this way. He says, no, it didn't come up because everybody had drunk the Kool-Aid. So people were just lulled into this sense of complacency that is just stunning. And again, when you look at the reality of this business model, and the hypocrisy in it. It is stunning. And then, you know, from that fundamental moral issue, Thorpe 
then does something I think that really ties this together. And this is similar, I think, to what Edwin Hall was saying in, in 1905 and looking at, at this moral choice that we have, if we make the right choice, then there are certain things that we can permit and it shouldn't be a, a big deal on that. So Dr. Weaver asks, she says, so here we are in a moment where Division One's rewriting their constitution. Should Division One reinvent itself? If so, how? Should a part of it be a commercial endeavor? Should certain sports have the opportunity to collectively bargain? What are your thoughts on this? And Dr. Thorpe says, well, of course, it's follow the money. That's the most important thing. And then he says, so what you have right now is a bunch of people in denial about what's fair or pretending like it is fair simply so that they can keep intercollegiate athletics nonprofit and then they don't have to pay taxes on it. They discuss this unrelated business income tax, which is something that's unique to nonprofit finances. I'm not going to get into that. I've talked about that in other episodes, but he goes on to say, I'm in favor of doing anything we can. So I was for the cost of attendance when it first started. I was actually on the committee that recommended the first round of cost of attendance. And I'll just note on that. He doesn't mention the white litigation where the NCAA fought like hell to avoid the cost of attendance stipend. It was called a stipend back then. Or the O'Bannon litigation where it spent $140 million to prevent the cost of attendance scholarship. We'll leave that for another day. But he said, I'm for name, image, and likeness. And he says, yeah, it creates all kinds of problems for the athletics directors to manage. That's their job. So go figure it out, guys. I just love that. You know. So he's just saying, yeah, this is the reality. It's here. It makes sense. It's fair. Deal with it. And that just cuts right to the, the heart of this hypocrisy. And these guys don't want to figure it out because they prefer to live in the lies that make it impossible to provide those benefits. And that expressed itself in the campaign in the Senate in 2019 and 2020, when the NCAA and Power Five were trying to get federal protections and immunities that would end the athletes' rights movement and would allow the NCAA and the Power Five to basically do whatever the hell they wanted to on cost of attendance or name, image, and likeness. So he said, the last thing we want to do is to continue to exploit these athletes. And of course, we should make them employees. They are employees. And then he goes on, yeah, it's not going to be easy and all that stuff. But he says, and the people that are working in intercollegiate athletics, they need to be working on how they're going to sort this out. I'm not saying it's not a complicated problem, but we need to treat the athletes better. And there was just a massive disconnect between the people who are doing all the work and the people who are collecting the money. And then Dr. Thorpe closes it out with uh, a reference to March Madness. And he says, if you want to compete in the NCAA basketball tournament, where are the NCAAs collecting a billion dollars a year or whatever it is, then those players who are entertaining folks in the basketball tournament, they deserve compensation for that. And that's a great comment, but it speaks to how difficult it would be to get that simple message into the debate during March Madness because we are being assaulted with the lie that is sitting right in that three-part dynamic that Thorpe was talking about and that massive swath in the middle that want to buy into the lies. And I was thinking about this last night after the game and during the press conference, and the NCAA requires the coaches and the athletes to do press conferences. That's part of the deal. They also now require coaches during the game to give interviews during timeouts. It's ridiculous. The influence that television has had on the experience of, of these athletes, and this is just voyeurism, and forcing these kids in front of microphones, particularly when they lose, to sell the misery of these kids to millions of Americans who are leeching off of them is just disgusting in my view. But I was thinking about this last night and there were probably six or seven reporters, high profile reporters from high profile media 
outlets. What if one of them had asked Coach K or asked one of the athletes, do you think that these athletes, or to the kids, do you think you should be getting a piece of the action here? Do you think that the performance you turned in tonight, which is going to have uh, phenomenal ratings and enhance the value of the commercials that were running during that game because of the high quality of the game and the drama of that game, do you think that you should get a piece of that action? If a reporter asks that question in that press conference, his career or her career would be over. That would be the ultimate betrayal of the grand lie. And the grand lie is that for three weeks in March, we suspend reality and we buy the ticket and take the ride to a Disney Turner created alternative universe where you cannot criticize any portion of the show that you are being force-fed. You just can't do it. If you do, then you are not a team player. You are not a part of the mainstream American culture. You are not a true American. I mean, that's how powerful this lie is, that the NCAA can basically suggest through all of this fantasy marketing that if you don't buy in 100%, and it's all or nothing, there's no middle ground here. If you don't buy in 100%, then you're an outcast and you are un-American in a business model that is perhaps the most un-American business model in modern American history. But how does that happen? It happens through decades of lies and reinforcing those lies and propaganda. And ultimately, that's what the NCAA is, and in my judgment, has always been. It is a propagandist and it is a very powerful propagandist. So when people say that the NCAA's days are numbered and that the NCAA and Power Five are going to be forced to come to Jesus on, on the lies in the business model and that the NCAA and the Power Five don't have a snowball's chance in hell of getting protective federal legislation, I just don't see it that way. We're not there yet. At the values level, at the normative level, we are not there yet. And I'm going to be talking about that when I talk about some of these additional pathways that have opened up. And one of those is this complaint with the Office of Civil Rights. And then there are all these forums going on. There's going to be a forum in a couple of weeks where some Democrat legislators who have proposed athlete-friendly legislation are going to hold a summit and have some athletes talk. I'm going to pay attention to that and and talk a little bit about that. So with that, I guess I'll close this out. I I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.